would you guys welcome up right now um, my father, the coolest guy on the planet, Randy Weiser. So we're actually jumping into a new series. Uh, we're jumping into the book of Acts. Uh, we finished up the Gospels. We took some time uh, looking at the, the beauty of salvation. And now we're spending the next, I think it's like six or seven weeks, uh, unpacking the first few chapters of the book of Acts. And who better to unpack that, at least start out, than the missionary, my pops, Randy Weiser. <laughs> Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you for... Uh, my dad's life and testimony uh, and walking in obedience to the word. I pray that we would receive from your word this morning, uh, that your spirit would speak to us. We make ourselves available now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Ah, it works. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> let me try this out if it works. Yes. So, uh, some of you are um, learned by reading best, some of you learn by hearing, some of you learn by hands-on, some of you learn by seeing, like pictures. Anybody? Two of you, good. So, <clears throat> so this, uh-oh, this presentation is actually tailored, well, actually all of my presentations are tailored to those who learn by seeing. I use, I use lots of pictures. So some of them made fun of me once and said that Jesus didn't have PowerPoint and he seemed to do pretty good. And I say, just think if he would have had PowerPoint, how good he would have done. So that's what... Uh, that's what I'm going to do. So this is a picture of, the, of a uh, <clears throat> Fort Greeley in Kodiak. It was the Army base during the war. And then after the war, the Army packed up and left. And they left this, this whole uh, base of these uh, barracks that they threw up uh, just before the war. So when I was about eight, my father bought this one here. And... Uh, our job, his plan was to tear that down uh, board by board and use the lumber to build us a house in town. We had been on the base, but he was civilian, so we were eventually asked to move off the base, so we had to move into town, and he wanted to build a house. He did. Um, and it was, a, it was a huge project. Uh, there's no plywood in these buildings back then. There's no trusses. Everything is board by board. Uh, pull it off, all one by, two by, tongue and groove, one by. So <clears throat> I can't remember. I, well, I, was, I don't recall how long it took, but I just remember it went forever. Um, and, and he didn't really have a problem with that because he had a goal in mind of the... Uh, house that we were going to build. He had a picture in his mind, and uh, that was enough motivation uh, for him. Every board he took off was a step closer to building that house. Um, I, on the other hand, didn't really have a goal or a picture in front of me. I don't even think I knew about the fact that we were going to build a house with these boards that we were taking off. It was just my job. My job was to pull all of the nails out of every board that he took off and handed uh, 
down to me. So I estimate there's something like 47 billion nails that I've pulled out of uh, boards. Basically, as a young kid, I just saw my life going away in, in pulling nails when I just wanted to go play with my friends. So it was every weekend, evening sometimes, and most of the summers, uh, we worked on this building. Um, pulling nails and stacking up the lumber to haul into town and store it in advance of putting up the building. I think maybe if my dad had explained to me exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it, so this is a project, this is the first step. We're tearing this building down, we're saving the wood, pulling all the nails out so we don't dull our saw blades when we cut through them, and, uh, and it's going to wind up with a nice house. Hello? Bedroom. Is that just me, or is it? Okay. <laughs> or, okay, this is really scary. Edson, <laughs> why don't you come up here and help you? <laughs> so, oh, I'm going to show you sure, the, the PowerPoint works. So, if he would have given me a picture of the house he was thinking of building, um, then I would have probably been more enthusiastic about the project and be a better uh, player in it. He didn't give me, oh, sorry, he didn't give me a picture, uh, but I was required to go along with it anyway, and I don't, I don't regret it necessarily. But this morning I want to talk about the Lord's project and the house that um, he is building. And there's different stages in that project that he has. And he has a goal in mind. There's a beginning and there's an end of the project. And he has a picture of what he wants the end of that project to look like. And all of us are born into that project. We're born into the middle of his project or uh, born more toward the end of his project. And we may not see clearly what the project is. We may not understand uh, what, we're, what we're going about right now. And we may choose not to be involved. We just want to go play with our friends instead. So that's what I want to do. I want to look at the Lord's project this morning with the theory that if you can get a good, clear understanding of what the Lord is up to in our time, you can better identify your role in that, the role he has invited you to take in that and be faithful in fulfilling it. So this is the title that I was given by the church um, and go, the initial advance of Christ's church. So this is the follow-up to the last four Sundays of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. Now what is the question? I changed the title. I wanted it to be this, the really great commission. Um, if you've been a Christian long, you understand what that is, but then I changed my mind and I went with this. What in the world is going on? That's what I want to talk about. What in the world is going on now in our time? What is God up to? So to do that, I want to um, look at the timeline, the beginning, the different phases of the project up until the end. So we, we pick up in Genesis 1 at the beginning. Actually, the Lord talks about things before the beginning of time that happened of time and going forward 
from there. So, Genesis 1, you're familiar with. God saw all that he had made. Behold, it wasn't just good, it was very good. Fortunately, I was able to find a picture of that, and this is what it was. An important thing to me is it was 80 degrees year-round, day and night, and clothes were optional at that temperature. <laughs> so it was a beautiful place, and we know as well. Uh, but there was a visitor who came into the garden, and we know that visitor had a deadly intent. It was like a terrorist coming into the garden to uh, bring death and destruction. He'd been thrown out of heaven. He was furious about that. So uh, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God said you should not eat from the tree of the garden? And Eve said, Well, he did say, If you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. And what did Satan say? You shall not surely die. And we know what happened. He brought this great fracture in the relationship between us and God, leading to us being driven out of the garden. Drove the man out, and he placed a cherubim, the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So no access to the tree of life. So we looked over our shoulder on the way out. This is what we're leaving, and this is the world that we were walking into. And I think it's a good picture of the world that we were walking into. We were living from that moment in constant fear of death. One slip up, one slip up, and you're done. You're gone. So you have to be extremely careful. Don't put your seatbelt on. What might happen? Go across the center line. Drink too much Diet Coke, according to my wife. Could be the end of you. Um, <clears throat> Get on the wrong cruise ship could be dangerous for you, and maybe you should be careful about that. So there's all these planning and thinking about avoiding that coming death. Plus, sin crouches at the door. We know that. We just step out for a minute, and sin grabs us and wrestles us down to the ground and defeats us. And this goes on generation um, after generation, bringing this death and destruction. So we call that first milepost the fall. We don't actually know how long it was from the beginning to the fall. But from the fall forward, we know just how long it was. The Lord made sure we could keep track of the time um, after the fall. So I want to jump ahead 1,500 years now on that timeline from the fall to the time of, of Noah. And we get an assessment of what it's like then. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is his summary of the situation. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. So there were school shootings. There was suicide bombers. There was sex trafficking. There was pedophiles. There were all these things, kidnapping little girls and locking them in their basements for 20 years. And um, killing babies in the womb, whole nations killing babies in, in the womb. So it's a very, very dangerous and violent place, and we long to get back to that relationship we had with God in the beginning in the garden. But there's two truths as we go move along the timeline, two um, fixed truths that we, we can't escape from. And one of them is we can't fix this. 
We try and try, and I think he shows us at the flood, you can't, you can't fix it. Look what, look what you turn the world into. So he says, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. That he should live on eternally, that he should not under, undergo decay. Why? Because the redemption of his soul is costly. And he should cease trying forever. We can't come up with the payment needed for our redemption. And he's saying, uh, basically, you should give up. There's no hope of you ever being able to do this. And that's, we find those comments all through the, the timeline in the Old Testament as we go along. But the other fixed truth is God has a plan to fix this from day one. Actually, before they left the garden, he has a plan he's working on to fix this. And we read about that. We will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. That's our life, like water thrown in the desert sand. Try to get it back. It's, it's gone forever. Yet, God is planning a way to bring the banished one back in. And that's the good news that he keeps reminding us as we go along. He puts in these little snippets for us. So in Isaiah's case, he, he takes Isaiah on a trip to the future. And Isaiah sees the day when he will swallow up death for all time, when the Lord will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. He has promised. The day is coming. He's going to reverse all of this. He's going to swallow death up, wipe away all tears, and remove this reproach of sin and death on us. In that day, when it happens, we will say, this is the God whom we've waited all these centuries and longer for, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So he assures us there is a rescue plan being worked on. He's preparing for that. We know not a lot about it from the Old Testament. We know it's, uh, it's top secret. He's not giving away that plan to the enemy, um, but he does give some indications about it. We know it's costly, it's a high cost. We know it's risky also. And now we know it took 4,000 years to lay the groundwork for that rescue attempt to, to save us. And he says, when the fullness of time came, he launched his rescue attempt. So it's kind of like D-Day, uh, when they launched the counterattack on the enemy to take back Europe. And this is what actually Satan was expecting. He knew this was coming and he was worried about it. We can tell from the conversation in, of the demons in the New Testament. They knew something was coming and they're kind of nervous about it, but they're expecting chariots of fire and double-edged swords and they were waiting for this. But D-Day actually looked like this. And it... <laughs> It completely baffled the enemy. And you know, the demons, they looked at Jesus and he said, what are you doing here like that? They said, you look human, but we know who you are. All the demons said, you can't fool us, we know who you are. And it took a while, well the devil didn't figure it out until the stone rolled away from the grave and Jesus came back from the dead. But we know now that we needed someone to die for us, and God can't die for us. 
Only if he became a man could he die for us. So that's what he did. He became a man. And that's what the last four Sundays have been talking about, the sacrifice and how it bought our justification and it redeemed us and reconciled us. And he paid for our salvation in that uh, one fell swoop that caught the enemy completely off guard. So John records it like this. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Paul says this, Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins that we needed. And I love the way David expresses it. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. We've been set loose from this iron uh, snare that held us for all those years. So that's what was accomplished at the cross. So now we look at the timeline and we call this milepost the um, cross. And that took 4,000 years to get to that point. And if you remember, Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. But you have to understand, it's not finished, finished, just his part then for that time was finished, which was a big part. But there's still quite a bit more to come. Actually, from that point, there's at least 3,000 years more of working to prepare the house that he's going to bring us into eventually. So there's several other project faces. We call this first one um, uh, tearing the barracks down, pulling all the nails out of the board, hauling the lumber into town, getting ready to start building. And now he's going to start building that place for us. So I want to look at um, the salvation experience that he bought for us. Um, how does that work and what happens now after that? And I'm going to do that by looking at uh, Bayweld. Surprisingly enough, Bayweld has a good example of uh, our salvation, and this is what it is. Not that your salvation is like a lottery ticket, but if you remember last summer, um, Bayweld and the Chamber of Commerce built this ocean-going skiff, um, and you could buy a $40 ticket for it. And I was so hoping that one of my kids would win that so I could borrow it. Uh, but apparently they didn't buy enough tickets because none of them won. But let's say that your name was drawn and you are the winner of this um, Bayweld's gift. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. It's a wonderful thing. But it doesn't do you any good unless somebody comes and tells you your name was drawn. You are the winner of this gift. If you never get that message, if you never hear it, um, it's of no benefit to you. Even if you do hear it, then you have to decide whether you believe it or not. And you say, I never win anything. This can't be true. I don't believe it. Well, we'll draw another name then. So you decide, once you get the news, you decide whether you believe it. And if you do believe it, you still have to actually go down and hook your truck up to the skiff and sign a piece of paper and haul it away. There's something that you need to do um, in response to that. So this is actually um, a good 
allegory of our salvation, if you followed me in that. Jesus saved the whole world. He died for everybody. But to avail of it, number one, you have to hear about it. Somebody has to tell you. Jesus Christ came and died for your sins to set you free. Once you hear it, you have to decide whether you believe it. That sounds like a fairy tale to me. I would never fall for something like that. It's nonsense. You heard about it. You decide whether you believe. But when you believe, you still have to respond and say, okay, thank you. I accept the gift of your salvation, which you would only do if you believed it's true. When you say you're saved by faith, that's what it means. You heard the message. Did you believe it or not? You don't have to conjure up faith. You just have to decide whether you believe it or not. And that's a very important step in your salvation. So this is what Paul says, saying the same thing in a little bit of a backwards way from what I said, or maybe my way was backwards. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, that's it. Everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him who they not believe? How are they to believe in him if they never heard about it? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? And then he says, that's why it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news in. That is the time we're in right now, the time of the beautiful feet to inform people of what the Lord has done for them. If you don't like your feet, the looks of them, sign up for this. The Lord will see beautiful feet that go out to pass the message. So it's a little bit like a uh, public awareness campaign because everybody's a winner in this lottery, but it doesn't help if they don't know about it, so we need to make them known. Or in legal, in legal terms, a notice has to be posted to be effective. So um, this may be a little too... Simple, but I'm calling this particular phase of the project we're in now the, the public notice phase. So legal notice is simply a requirement that a party must be furnished with sufficient knowledge concerning the legal process that affects his rights and duties or obligations. In other words, it's a way of notifying individuals or organizations about a matter by using a method required by the law courts, which could be you have to post it in the newspaper, you have to send a registered letter, or in some cases you have to actually put it in their hand, the notice that affects them. So this last week, we got a notice in the mail up at uh, Alaska Village Missions. Somebody died and left a significant amount of funds in their will for Alaska Village Missions, and they were required to send us a notice to let us know about that. And we got the notice, and I can decide I don't believe this and throw it in the trash, but I think I'm going to give it a chance to see if it might be actually right. Thing is, we don't even know this person, and we don't know how they knew about AVM, but we are, Alaska Village Missions is written into the will. So that's what's going on, this legal notice, this public awareness. Or, or just informing people of what Jesus has done for them. So, but as Paul pointed out, we need to actually send somebody to give this message. So who shall we send? And Jesus said to them, after his resurrection, peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. So that's King James. I love the even so send I you. 
And that's what Jesus is saying. Okay, you guys, the church, I am sending you with this message. And then he goes on to say, just minutes before he departs, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth, which would be Alaska. So that's not in some of your versions, because mine goes all the way back to the original Greek, and in the original Greek, if you read it, this is there. So they're empowered by the Spirit. He gives them his Holy Spirit. He says, all right, guys, go to the uttermost parts of the world. And he says, since we have gifts that differ, according to the grace given us, each of us is to exercise them. So without spending a lot of time on that, he gives everybody a gift to take part in this project, a gift of the Spirit that he's placed in you to help with this project. Um, lastly, see if I skipped a page. This one is very important. In this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus explaining to the disciples, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, even to Alaska, as a testimony to all nations so that they can decide whether they believe it or not and respond or not respond, and then the end will come. So don't get confused again. That's not the end, the last thing. It's just the end of that project. Said, I'm going to give you a little bit of time here to take this message to the entire world. When you finish that, then that's the end of that project. Then we're moving on to the next phase of the project, which comes after that. So we're headed toward, remember, we're headed toward this. That's the final end. God is building us a place, preparing us a place, a new Eden where we're going to be with him, living with him. And it tells us about the end of the project in Revelations. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear, tear from their eyes. There's no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. So there's plenty of death and crying and pain and sorrow now. But he's saying, when we get to that end of the project, that is gone. And that's what Isaiah saw. Death will be abolished. So I want to look at just before Jesus left, he gave the 12 disciples some instructions about going to the uttermost part of the earth, and he gave them a map which may have looked something like this. And he said, guys, here's the map. Take this message to the edges of the map, all edges of the map. Then when that's done, we'll move on to the next part of the project. There's actually a good picture of this in the book of Esther. Remember the book of Esther? The Jews were under um, the sentence of death, destruction, and annihilation, and then followed by plunder because of one evil prince, Haman. So Haman got this law passed that on this date, all the Jews in the entire kingdom, 127 countries, were to be killed, annihilated, and destroyed. Esther and Mordecai were able to intervene and get another law passed that made a way of escape for the Jews. Um, but the problem is the first law has already gone out. And now they have to get this new law out there in time for those people to use it to escape this death, annihilation, and destruction. So this is what the king said. 
The couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command went out riding on the royal steeds. So the king gave his fastest horses, get this message out there. In Susa in the capital, they could just hand it out on the street. But the far edges of the kingdom, a month or two months away, they had to get on these horses and take off to get that message there in time. So that's us. Lord says, okay, go, get on the horses. So the Lord may provide horses, but he gives us his Holy Spirit and the gifts of his Holy Spirit to go and get out to the edges of the map and get this word out there so we can move on to the next part of the project. So here's where we are now. Um, we're 2,000 years into this. So it took a little longer than maybe what the Lord was thinking, but we're 2,000 years to reach the edges of the map. And if we look, track the progress, this is at the end of the book of Acts, 50 years in, they've already covered um, this area here, which is pretty impressive. There's so few of them, but they were into Syria and Turkey and Greece and Italy, and Paul was headed to Spain. So they're really going for it. And then they kind of got sidetracked for a while. But if we jump up um, 1,500 years, then it looks more like this. So Europe is fully legally notified. Uh, Russia, Asia, in, in 1520, Magellan showed up in the Philippines, in Mactan, Cebu, and planted the cross of Jesus Christ in the beach. When I was there, I went and saw the cross. It's in a church in Cebu. And I looked closely, and it was made out of quarter-inch plywood, which I didn't know they had 1,500 years ago, but, or in 1,521. But it was there, and he brought, the, he brought the message of Christ. And then they had to get across the water. There's a whole North and South America over there. They couldn't figure out how to get there. They should have gone the other way, but they waited to get across the ocean here, and that took some time. But if we jump up two or 300 years more, the pilgrims came across, so North America's addressed. The Spanish went to South America. But if you'll see on the map, Alaska is not yet reached, and that's actually the uttermost part if you remember in Acts chapter 1. And they haven't gotten there yet. So we're working at that and we're getting closer to it. And I actually uh, found on the map the place that is the real uttermost is Little Diomede in uh, Bering Straits. Okay, if you get to Little Diomede in the Bering Straits, you've got to the end of the uttermost. And I didn't I don't have a picture of it, but I was able to actually find a picture of a small chapel in Little Diomede, a little Catholic chapel. And, but we can say now, if we jump up to the present day, I can, I can say very confidently that there is no village in Alaska, the smallest, remotest village, no village in Alaska where the gospel has not been presented in some degree anyway. The Lord decides when, how much is sufficient. But definitely, there's no village in Alaska where you can go and say, have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? And they would say no. Um, so our work at AVM is actually 
not bringing the gospel for the first time to the villages, but doing follow-up work and making sure it's a sufficient uh, message to those in the villages. But remember this, this is what the Lord said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So if you look back at the map, um, when it's proclaimed to the whole world, then the end will come. I would say that we are um, close to fulfilling those instructions from the Lord. And so what I want to say is, if you want to be involved in this part of the Lord's project, um, you don't have a lot of time left, in my opinion. He's about to wrap this part up and take us to the next part. So here's the take-home message. It answers the question, what is going on in the world now? The Lord has a goal to repair forever the damage done by Satan 6,000 years ago to us. In our time, he is focused on letting the whole world know of the opportunity he has created for them to be reunited with him. He has invited you to participate in that effort. He has uniquely equipped you for a specific and significant role in that project, which is nearing completion, nearing completion, my opinion. So that's what's going on in the world now. And many of you understand that completely and fully, and you're actively engaged fulfilling your part in uh, hastening the coming of Christ. Some of you may be a little unsure uh, how relevant that is to you and your life and what your part might be in that. And some of you are pretty sure that we, the rest of us, have lost our minds. We are much study has made us uh, loopy. Uh, no, we actually speak words of sober truth. The Lord has uniquely equipped you for a specific role, specific and significant role in what he is doing in the uh, world now. So I'm going to pull just a few um, pointers out of this now. Number two, you can choose how involved you want to be. It's not slave labor. Choose how involved you want to be. You should not choose not to be involved. So I say that because of a story in the Old Testament of a man who insisted that he would not do his part that the Lord had designed him to do. And here's a picture of him here. And so the Lord used his gentle persuasion to get Jonah on board, although reluctantly he finally agreed to it. So you should not choose not to be involved. If you do, keep your life jacket on. <laughs> you should not delay your participation until a better time. I say that because anybody uh, my age knows of people who worked their entire life to prepare for their retirement, and then a week after their retirement, they had a heart attack and died. So you can't put off your involvement for a later or better time because there may not come a later or better time. So all along, you want to be involved. In your retirement, you may be able to involve in different ways than you are now, but don't put off until, them, until then to be involved. Oops, going the wrong way. Okay, your level of participation is not restrained 
by your occupation. So I'll give an example of what I mean by that. This is a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. So she has this uh, fabric store, high-end fabric store, but she believed in God. And Paul showed up in town and was bringing notification of what Jesus had done, the news of what he had done for her. And she listened to it, and she said, I believe that, and she responded to it. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And um, Paul and, and the team with them, probably five or six men, said, uh, no, no, that'd be too much of a burden on you. We have our tents. We'll just stay here down by the river. She prevailed upon us. She said, I will have a part in the Lord's project and what he's doing. And this is one way I can do it. My fabric store gives me the means to be able to take care of you and your team while you're here in my city. And she insisted. And uh, she didn't leave her occupation. She needed to make a living like everybody else. But you have to, whatever your occupation, you have to find out how to use what's available to you and how to use the gift that he has given you. So some people have the gift of music and worship, and I'd like to call them up, and we're not asking them to leave their occupation to participate, but they can come up and lead us in worship. And I'll give you a couple more. Beware of perfunctory participation. So perfunctory is not actually King James. I don't think it's even in the Bible, but if you look it up, this is what it is done only to fulfill a duty in a careless, indifferent, or obligatory manner, performed to minimally comply with the requirement. You should know, if you don't already, that nothing irritates or agitates the Lord more than a lukewarm approach to his work or to things eternal. The Lord says to the lukewarm person, spare me. And uh, should make that your memory verse. Hezekiah 3.14, spare me you're going to be lukewarm in your approach. Um, the last one then is no one can discern by observing you how involved you really are. So uh, we don't have any, any business trying to decide how involved people are. And I'll give you this one example. So this man's name, Joseph. His son's name is Jesus. Joseph was a full-time carpenter all of his life, all of his career. And maybe he dreamed about being involved more in real ministry, uh, but nothing opened, opened up for him. And he worked until his death as a carpenter. Question is, did Joseph have a specific and significant role to play in the Lord's project? The Lord told him, Joseph, I want you to prepare my son Jesus for life and ministry. And he fulfilled that. So Joseph is no small player in God's project. So you should be careful about judging others about not being adequately involved in the Lord's ministry. You can't tell by appearances. And for you, you should do what the Lord is telling you to do. And don't let others judge you for that. Um, don't minimize it. And for some, I think you'll be surprised to find out how significant your role was in the project. 
and you thought you weren't really doing that much. So, just to take home again, the Lord has uniquely equipped you for a specific and significant role in what he's doing in the world now. Don't miss it. Okay, I'd like to pray for you. Lord, we, we are so appreciative of what you have done for us and how you launched a rescue plan and all that you've um, done so far and that you will do until you reach the end where we're reunited forever with you. Death and, and crying and sorrow and tears are abolished forever, and we look forward to that. Lord, we're also thankful that you've involved us in this project and give us something we can do to contribute in this particular phase of the project they're in right now and help you make that clear to us and help us to be faithful in what you've called us as the church together to do in serving notice to the world that salvation is available. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Amen. Guys. The gospel is fantastic news. He took your sin. You're free. The kingdom is a move. It's all, all around the earth. Just like Randy was sharing, I was just thinking, I, I love looking at scripture and looking at the way that God's moved through all of history. That every turn of the narrative that looks like bad news is actually God making a comeback yet again. Uh, seeing his, his power in history and his power in our lives. The gospel is fantastic news. And the kingdom is alive in your life, in your family, and in Homer. And we get to be a part of that. He's in our life moving.